It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, June 14th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. Kelly Reese returns Friday. The California Report explores the mixed opinions surrounding tighter constraints on the use of gas-powered gardening equipment. Then, after a look at regional news and weather, KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza meets with a local veteran-led volunteer organization that works to clear brush and trees along the River Fire burn scar. That's all before KVMR's Al Stoller discusses the state of California's role in Native American genocide with author and UCLA professor Benjamin Madley. This is the California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco. The town of Paradise will test a new siren system tomorrow that's designed to help people evacuate from wildfires before it's too late. Paradise was leveled almost five years ago by the deadliest wildfire ever in California. From North State Public Radio, wildfire reporter Jamie Jiang has the story. During the 2018 campfire, many of the evacuation alerts that should have lit up people's phones before flames engulfed Paradise never came. That's according to a Mercury News investigation. On a recent afternoon, Paul Klefoth, who survived the campfire and was shopping for groceries in Paradise, said he's worried that even the new sirens won't work. The fire that we had in, in 2018, they, they'd all made all these preparations before for evacuation, and the, the fire was moving so fast that nobody had a chance to get a warning. This Thursday's test will start with a voice message and then sirens that sound like this. Residents do not have to evacuate. Paradise officials have tried to spread the word about the test, but are concerned that people will be caught unaware. And when I asked the five people working at the taco shop next door to the grocery... I just want to know if all of you guys know about the Thursday emergency exercise. No. No, no. No? None did. Meanwhile, Paradise will provide emotional support for those who need it on Thursday. For the California Report, I'm Jamie Jiang in Paradise. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care, now with more than 850 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. If your day has ever been interrupted by this sound, then you might be glad to hear that local and state officials are cracking down on the use of gas-powered gardening equipment like leaf blowers. But not everyone is thrilled about these changes. My California Report co-host Saul Gonzalez brings us this story. Go to just about any community gathering place in California, like this dog park in South Pasadena, and ask people about leaf blowers. You'll hear an earful, like what local Fred Stripe told me as he took a break from playing with his dog. It is a nightmare. There's never a time where there isn't a gas blower going somewhere 
front, back, left, right, but it's awful. So this is part of like the soundtrack of your life. That's a perfect way to put it. Noise pollution is often the issue in the debate over using gas-powered gardening equipment instead of quieter alternatives, like battery-powered gear. But beyond noise pollution, there are air pollution concerns as well. According to state environmental regulators, gas-powered gardening equipment pumps upwards of 140 tons of pollutants into the air daily, and a single gas leaf blower can generate the same amount of pollution in one hour as a car being driven over a thousand miles. But there is a big change coming to the world of California landscaping and gardening on January 1st. That's when the state will ban the sale of new gardening equipment powered by gas engines. And even before that happens, a growing number of cities, including South Pasadena, are prohibiting the use of all gas-powered leaf blowers, old and new, backed up by fines of up to $500. California's commercial gardeners and landscape workers are not thrilled about these changes. As he works to clean a front yard in the city of Glendale, Alejandro, who doesn't want his last name used because he's undocumented, says his gas-powered leaf blower is essential to doing his work and supporting his family. It's more than a machine. When I tell Alejandro about the coming ban on the sale of new gas-powered leaf blowers in the state, he doesn't like it one bit. He says electric versions will mean longer work days as he looks for places to charge batteries while out on the job. Those views are echoed by Gilbert Frausto, who crisscrosses the L.A. area with his landscaping crew. Frausto worries about the cost to commercial gardeners of transitioning to battery-powered gear. They're like $500 for a gas blower. Right now, if you buy a blower with the two batteries, it costs you close to $1,500, $2,000. So three to four times as much. Yes. To help commercial gardeners with the cost of transitioning to zero-emission equipment, Southern California's Air Quality Management District has launched a voucher-based exchange program with participating retailers. Gardeners who qualify could see the cost of buying new zero-emission equipment reduced by up to 85%. The old gas-powered equipment they turn in will be destroyed. Michael Cacciotti, the vice chair of the board of the AQMD, says gardeners who've made the change from gas to electric have been won over by the health benefits of working with quieter and cleaner equipment. When they first started, they were reluctant, as everybody is at first does a transition. But after several weeks or months, they all said, my God, I don't go home smelling like gas with my family. My ears aren't ringing every day. But like the transition to zero-emission cars and trucks, proponents of moving to electric yard and landscaping equipment acknowledge it will take a long time to do. That means this sound that we've all heard in our respective neighborhoods over the years probably won't end anytime soon. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez. Flamin' Hot is a new movie out this month that tells the story of Richard Montañez, the Mexican man who claimed to have invented Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Montañez goes from a janitor at the Frito-Lays Rancho Cucamonga plant to an executive of the company after he allegedly dreamt up a chile-covered Cheeto. So it makes sense that the Mexican community would see him as a great point of pride. I mean, who doesn't love an underdog story? But what if it's not true? 
A 2021 investigation by the LA Times revealed that Montañez did not invent the hot Cheeto. A team in Plano, Texas did. So I'm curious, does that change whether you watch the film? Let me know on Twitter at ByMadiBolaños. And that's the California Report for Wednesday, June 14th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the Sacramento Bee is reporting that the West Nile virus has been detected in Yolo County for the first time this year. According to the Sacramento Yolo Mosquito and Vector Control District statewide, the mosquito sample of West Nile virus was collected in Woodland. And the California Department of Public Health stated that 16 dead birds and 15 mosquito samples have tested positive. But as of yet, there have been no human cases in the state in 2023. The district announced on June 5th that the first mosquito sample this year was found in Sacramento County. But the virus itself was first detected on May 17th, when two dead birds found on Florin Road in South Sacramento tested positive. In response to the recent findings, the district said it would continue to monitor West Nile virus activity through widespread mosquito trapping and testing. It'll also perform treatments in areas where positive mosquitoes have been found to decrease populations and protect public health. But how does West Nile virus make itself known in a human host? Well, mild or moderate symptoms of the virus can include fever and fatigue, while severe symptoms in humans include neurological conditions like meningitis. But it's relatively rare to experience severe illness as a result of West Nile virus. In fact, only about 1 in 150 people are heavily affected. And you can take steps to avoid contracting the virus, like draining standing water, avoiding being outdoors at dawn and dusk, dressing in long sleeves and pants when outside, and making sure that your doors and windows are in good condition. Those tips come from the Vector Control District statewide. The Tahoe National Forest announced in a media release that it would be burning two acres near Nevada City today, near the intersection of Cruisin' Grade Road and Bear Trap Springs Road. So, you may see smoke from that prescribed fire operation for several days. It's expected to settle into the valleys this evening and lift tomorrow morning. The Tahoe National Forest coordinates with state and local county air pollution control districts and monitors weather conditions closely prior to prescribed fire ignition. The goal of this prescribed burn was to decrease existing fire hazards and to prevent and reduce the impact of future fires in the area. And with this one being no exception, every prescribed burn operation follows a burn plan. A burn plan considers temperature, humidity, wind, moisture of the vegetation, and conditions for the dispersal of smoke. That information is used to decide when and where to burn. In this case, it was these two acres along the San Juan Ridge. Other benefits of prescribed burning include enhancing wildlife habitat and reintroducing fire into a fire-adapted ecosystem. You can learn more about prescribed burning at www.fs.usda.gov. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming clear with a low around 57. Thursday, sunny with a high near 81. And Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 59. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 43. Thursday, sunny with a high near 71. And Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 43. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 58. 
Thursday, sunny with a high near 91, and Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 58. Currently, there are no active red flag warnings or fire weather watches. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. The River Fire, a 2021 wildfire that burned 2,619 acres in the Colfax area of Nevada and Placer counties, was the fifth most destructive fire of 2021 in California. KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza met with Team Rubicon, a local volunteer organization that works to clear brush and trees along the fire's burn scar. At the end of Meyer Road, off of Colfax Highway, a crew of volunteers, most wearing gray t-shirts, has assembled. Some are falling trees, some are clearing brush, and some are fueling chainsaws, while others are getting piles of branches ready for chipping. They're part of an organization called Team Rubicon, a veteran-led humanitarian organization. Team Rubicon started when our founder, Jake Woods, responded to the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. He was a former Marine and just felt called to to serve in the disaster zone where he thought that he could do the most good. He got on an airplane uh, with one of his friends and while, while waiting in the airport, they met up with some other people that were kind of on the same mission. They were just self-deploying to Haiti and were able to do good. Upon return, they decided that what they were doing was a worthwhile endeavor and they wanted to, to make a much bigger impact and so they created Team Rubicon. 13 years later, Team Rubicon has deployed volunteers all over the United States and to more than 30 countries. And this week, they're in our neck of the woods in what they are calling Operation Timber Bear. We arrived June 9th and we'll be here through June 20th. We have been uh, cutting lots of burned trees in the areas. We're going to properties that have the most uh, economical and physical needs of the folks that own the properties. We've been working on taking down the trees, what we call bucking and limbing the trees, so making them into smaller pieces, and then working with other organizations to help uh, chip and get rid of the slash that's left over. That's Matthew Henderson. He's the incident commander for Operation Timber Bear. So Timber Bear, we we try to come up with unique names for every operation. It's similar to, because we are veteran-led, we have a lot of our core principles and the way we do things are from the military world. Um, And as I'm sure you've seen in in movies and television, that part is true. Most operations do have some sort of names. Um, And timber obviously comes from falling trees and bear from from the Bear River Fire. And what we plan to do up here, uh, we've been working with uh, local VOADs and Connecting Point especially. They've identified properties of the underserved community, um, economically challenged, medically challenged community. Those are the folks we really enjoy helping. They've identified multiple properties up in here that have uh, standing dead trees and fallen trees that are incredibly hazardous to the homeowners they don't have a way to go get out and get those done. So we have the crews that are capable of coming in and helping them. Matthew says that Team Rubicon has been working closely with Connecting Point to identify who needs the help that they can provide. 
they're providing us with a list of homes that they've already talked to the homeowners and uh, signed the releases allowing us to go onto their property. So they're just, they're giving a list and, and going in and saying, these people are in the most need and then we kind of move on from there. Team Rubicon is here in part because of the efforts of Nora Esters. So I've been signed up with Team Rubicon as a gray shirt volunteer since 2021. Nora works for Connecting Point as the River Fire Case Management Coordinator. Because I work full time, I'm not able to volunteer much and I actually wasn't able to volunteer until this year in January uh, when Sacramento flooded. Uh, And that was my connection to Team Rubicon because I'd already been signed up, I'd already been aware of it. And going to volunteer in Sacramento and seeing them do tree work, I was like, hey, the folks in the river fire that we provide case management for through Connecting Point, they need this type of work done. And I saw how skilled and organized Team Rubicon was. So I just started asking any staff or admin volunteers hey, can we do an operation outside of Colfax in the River Fire Burn Scar? And I just kept asking and advocating for it. And eventually they ended up making me a planner for Team Rubicon to just plan it myself and train me to do that. And then it happened. And I'm so, so grateful that it did. Normally, Team Rubicon has to do its own site surveys and is sometimes met with suspicion by the communities that they're helping. But Matthew says that for Operation Timber Bear, things are different. And that's because of Nora. So I started talking to Team Rubicon in January about trying to get this going. Um, It's been a long time coming. A lot of effort and work has gone into it, both from Team Rubicon and then from Connecting Point. So as case managers, and we also have a construction cost analyst, uh, we've put it, you know, we're in direct contact with survivors that are on our caseload. And survivors, like, we have a long list of survivors, some that don't need case management, but we kept them on our radar because we knew they needed tree work. So we did a, an email survey a few months ago just to see who would be interested, and that started our list of, like, okay, these people would, would want help if we can even get help. And it was always... You know, we don't know if this is going to happen. It's a maybe, but let us know if you want help. So we were able to compile the list, get right of entry forms from all the property owners. We also did our own. Team Rubicon does reconnaissance. They take a look at properties and see what's within their scope, what they can do. We were able to do that for them because we're always out driving around in the burn scars. So we were able to go to all the properties, get an idea of who needed what, what was in TR's scope, and also give folks pink tape. We gave everybody pink tape to go mark the trees that they wanted down. So once Team Rubicon was here, they could just go out and work. We did all that pre-work and prep for them. Before leaving the site, I asked one of the volunteers to tell me why they do it. Why do they travel the country volunteering? I talked to Sam Ross, a Marine Corps veteran who, along with his wife, lives in an RV full-time, traveling from site to site. Um, I, I really, uh, honestly, the first time I did a Team Rubicon mission, uh, for me personally, the uh, the ability to give back to the to any community, um, any group of people, especially the people who are having uh, having a bad day for one reason or another, um, is extremely fulfilling. And uh, the other part of it for me was just the 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 camaraderie that comes from uh, being around a lot of a, a large amount of, of veterans. You know, I the the first mission I went on. 
I called my wife, I think, within a day of being there, and I said, oh, my God, I found my group. Um, you know, this is something I, I, I'm going to want to do as much as I can for the rest of my life, without a doubt. Um, it, it fills me up. It, it you know, it, it uh, gives me a chance to come out here and play and, and hopefully, um, you know, bring some good to whatever community needs it. Sam also emphasized that for a lot of vets, Team Rubicon gives them an opportunity to serve people in a culture of genuine camaraderie that's familiar to many service members. Most people join the military to hopefully because they enjoy, they want to serve their their community, they want to serve their country, and um, I think we've seen with a lot of these guys and myself myself too. Once you're out, you really kind of miss that opportunity to you don't know which avenue to take to to necessarily give back to the community and team rubicon whether you're a veteran or you know an awesome citizen gives you that wide open door and the tools and the safety and the i think the the uh culture too uh, uh awesome culture although team rubicon is veteran led you don't have to have military experience to join you can get more information at teamrubiconusa.org and if you want to help here and now during Operation Timber Bear, Matthew says you can do that too. We also like to work with folks from the local community and we invite them to stop by and just say, hey, I want to come out and work with you guys. We call them spontaneous volunteers. So they sign a release of liability. We give them a free Team Rubicon shirt and they head out in the field with us for the day. We are at the Sierra View Community Center. Stop by in Colfax. The doors are open there during the day. Come by, talk to any one of us. Um, we generally would like volunteers there by 7.30 in the morning if they're gonna come in and volunteer for the day. Wear long pants, uh, sturdy work boots, and we will provide the shirt. For KVMR, I'm Claudio Mendoza. The gold rush of the mid-1800s brought thousands of European settlers to California, and as the immigrant population grew, the native Californian population met a merciless decline. But what role did the state play in the mistreatment and disregard of Native Americans? KVMR's Al Stoller spoke with UCLA professor Benjamin Madley to explore that topic. Between 1846 and 1870, California's indigenous population plummeted from perhaps 150,000 individuals to not more than 30,000 survivors. And, and much of that killing was driven by the state of California. When California's legislators first convened in 1850, one of their very first orders of business was banning all Indians from voting, barring those with one half of Indian blood or more from giving evidence for or against whites in criminal cases, and then denying Indians the right to serve as jurors. And soon thereafter, California's assemblymen and senators banned Indians from serving as attorneys. So if you think about this basic situation, these laws shut California Indian people out of participation in and protection by the state legal system. And this was you know, effectively a, a virtual grant of impunity to those who attacked them. But then they went quite a bit farther. They ended up funding 24 different state militia expeditions that killed an absolute minimum of 1,000. 340 California Indian people during those years, and they funded them. They passed three bills in the 1850s that raised up to $1.15 million to fund these operations. Huge amount of money at that time, both for past and for future militia operations. And then by demonstrating that the state of California would not punish killers, but instead reward them with these militia expeditions, 
helped to inspire vigilantes to kill at least 6,460 California Indian people between 1846 and 1873. The endorsement of genocide was only very thinly veiled. So, for example, in 1851, California's first democratically elected governor, Peter Burnett, declared that, and I quote, a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. Another example would be California's Senator John Weller in Washington in 1852, man who became the governor of the state in 1858. He told his colleagues in the U.S. Senate that California Indians, and I quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And he argued that the interest of the white man demands their extinction. Why was it so important for the state and federal governments to eliminate the Indians? The newcomers wanted the gold. They wanted the timber. They wanted the water. They wanted the grazing land. They wanted the farming land. And all of the other resources that make California today the most populous prosperous state in the wealthiest and most powerful nation on earth. And they wanted to be sure there would be no one with another claim to ownership of the land. That's right. So there were to be treaties with California Indian people. There were treaty negotiations that set aside approximately one out of every seven acres in California for reservation lands. But the State Assembly and the State Senate of California made a big ruckus to prevent these treaties from being ratified by the United States Senate. So instead of one-seventh of the state being set aside for reservations, less than one percent of the state was set aside for reservations. But there was also a huge amount of hating going on and a great deal of dehumanization. That was part of the, the justification for all of this. Mike Tyson, the heavyweight fighter, said everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the face. When we're angry, we cannot think straight. Those in charge did all they could to make people angry at the native Californians. I think that journalists were sort of the people fanning the flames uh, even more than the politicians. There were calls in rural newspapers in places like Chico and, and even in big city newspapers like Sacramento, but especially in the smaller places, Wairica or Redlands, where there were journalists calling for the extermination of this state's original indigenous people. They would talk about them as a threat, not only to economic development and wealth creation, but also as a threat to colonists and to their children and their wives. I've been speaking with UCLA professor Benjamin Madley. Dr. Madley will be speaking at an event of music and information presented by the Nissanon tribe at the Center for the Arts this Sunday from 3.30 in the afternoon until 7.30. For information on that event, go online to nisinan.org. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for this Wednesday, June 14th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night.